This is a Chronicle podcast, bringing you ideas in the service of medicine. From the Chronicle podcast system, this is the NPC podcast of the National Pharmaceutical Congress for January 12, 2021. The NPC podcast was created to discuss and consider the purpose, process and people of the pharma industry during the COVID era. We'll continue the healthcare conversation by answering questions sent by listeners. Just like you. This program is presented in cooperation with Imprez, Canada's next generation commercial partner. The industry is rapidly evolving, and Imprez is designed to help you evolve with it. Learn more about Imprez tailored best-in-class solutions at www.imprez.com. Our guest today is Dr. Ted Wittig of the Dalla School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. He'll join your hosts, Jim, Mark, and Mitch, to talk about the integration of technology into health systems and other subjects. To start this week's conversation, here is Mitch Shannon, CEO of Chronicle Companies. Welcome to the NPC Podcast. I'm your host, Mitch Shannon. Joining me today in our podcast gondola with a close view of center ice is Mark McElwain, the consultant and senior health policy expert. Hello, Mark and Leeside. Bonjour. Bonjour. Glad to be back. Great. Completing our hosting trio is James Shea, general manager at Council for Continuing Pharmaceutical Education. Jim, what's the word in Montreal today? Oh, that word would probably be last, as in the Habs are technically in last place. All right. Somebody has to uh, dwell in the cellars. We answer to the collective name of Jim, Mark, and Mitch because all the really cool names were taken, such as IQVIA and Bates Motel. Jim and Mark, we've got an interesting guest on today's podcast. He goes by the name of Dr. Theodore J. Wittick, Jr. He is professor and senior fellow at the Institute of Health Policy Management and evaluation at the Dalla School of Public Health, University of Toronto. Many of our listeners will know the name Ted Wittick from his six years as CEO of Boringer Ingelheim, Canada. Ted, thanks for dropping by. Well, thank you very much for having me, Mitch. Appreciate it. Not at all. You're best known in the Canadian life sciences as the former president of VICL, but you had an interesting career journey that led you to and through that company. Can you describe your background for our listeners? Uh, certainly. Everything begins with, you know, when we're, we're young, it all takes us as a starting point. But I trained in university in physiology, pharmacology, with a real focus on respiratory physiology. And that's where I met my mentor. So that's why I mentioned that, because my mentor, Neil Schachter, assisted me in starting my track of publications. He worked with me to fill out my application for Master of Public Health at Yale. And then when he received the promotion to go to Mount Sinai, New York City, he invited me along to join him there. And that's where I finished my doctorate in public health at Columbia and had performed a lot of research with Neil. And we actually published a textbook together, Pharmacology and Therapeutics and Respiratory Care. But that was really the start, that academic start to my entry into the pharmaceutical business. So I started out on the bench at Beringer Ingelheim in 1982, and for a few years was screening compounds for asthma and allergy, and then was invited into the clinical research world at Beringer, and was given the good fortune to start 
running the global program for Teotropium, and that was taking it from early phases all through global registration. So that was really a big part of my career, although I did work on several other very interesting compounds. That was the one that I, you know, it's very close to my heart because it was 12 years of my life. But, you know, one interesting thing about the development is if you manage your own career, Berger is very supportive of listening to you. I was given the opportunity to move more into the business world. I did a mid-career MBA, which I recommend to many students not to do that right after school because I think I absorbed more and was invited to become the global head of our strategic alliance with Pfizer. Now, we thought we were a company that, well, we were good, but maybe we could be better if we bonded with a bigger company to really maximize the value of Spiriva. And we selected Pfizer as our co-promotion partner. And I was invited to move to Germany from the United States. So the first decade of my career was in Connecticut. Then I went off to Germany to manage the strategic alliance with Pfizer. So it's kind of funny. I moved to Europe to fly to New York every week, but that's another story. And that went very well for both companies. It was a success, an alliance success, both for Beringer Engelheim and for Pfizer, which is what we really strive for. But trying to stay in a leadership role in pharma, I was given the opportunity to become the managing director, the CEO in our Portuguese operation. So I moved from Ingelheim to Lisbon for four years and really enjoyed that role. And immediately in managing my own career, which as you can see as a theme, I really worked to move to a top 10 country. And my first choice in the top 10 of Beringer world was Canada. And I was very pleased to be named president and CEO back in 2008 and managed a six-year term because everything in the system was four years in Germany, four years in Portugal, four years in Canada, but managed a two-year extension and then retired from Beringer at that time in 2014 and then received a call from another Canadian who is quite renowned in our field, Matai Mamam, who is currently now the global head of R&D for Janssen. He invited me to work on another strategic alliance, and that was with that time Theravance and Innoviva with their co-promotion with Glaxo in London. So um, I served as chief scientific officer for five years, which takes me very close to today, where most of my work now is back on the academic front and consulting and advising and being on boards. So that was my journey in five minutes. It's Jim here. That's a great overview and certainly talks about a lot of broad experiences that you have. And it just makes me think of a couple of things here. And I'll ask one of them now is, so you're a professor, senior fellow at the Dalla School of Public Health at U of T, and you've also gone to the Rotman School of Management. Now, how do you manage to straddle that very different worlds of academia and industry? I know I've had problems with that in trying to approach academia as, as an industry person, but you're living in both worlds. How do you do that? Well, yeah, I try to consider it as a, as a Venn diagram because we're all after the same thing in healthcare. Definitely different worlds, different structures, different governance. But the important thing is to understand what the goals of academia are, what the goals of industry are. You know, particularly within the American Thoracic Society, I served on the Drug Device Development Committee and chaired that for a few years. And that was interesting because that was a point where academics and industry scientists were able to discuss and address any issues head on with respect to the role of pharma and drug development, the role of, of how we involve academics, 
So, you know, I think part of it is putting yourself in the shoes of the person across the table and making sure that we're able to blend the best of what we do to ultimately develop new and innovating drugs. So I guess that would be one way to describe the link, but I try to not keep it so separate and try to make it more of a team approach to development, bringing down a few of the natural barriers that seem to exist. Very good, Ted. It's Mark here. I'm wondering how you found the cultural switch from the Portugal headquarters to the Canadian headquarters here in the greater Toronto area. Well, very interesting evolution because, you know, moving from U.S. to Germany and then Germany to Portugal, you know, I recall the taxi driver that picked me up from the airport in Portugal. He says, you know, where where are you coming from? I said, I transferred to Germany to Portugal. And it was him that said, well, you're coming from the land of many rules to the land of no rules, but not necessarily would agree with him. But that was his description. And then, you know, coming from, you know, say a European environment to Canada, Yes, there are similarities and there are differences. You know, when you look at those situations, Mark, I mean, everything comes down to fundamentals, uh, no matter what culture or what environment you're in. And, you know, the transitions weren't hard. There were different work styles. You know, in Portugal, I had to allow time to watch the World Cup, you know, and, uh, and the Euro. And that was really part of the culture there. And you have to engage in, in each individual culture where you're managing. But, you know, the transition is really smoothed over, as I said, by the fundamentals of engaging, becoming part of and and understanding the way things are done, you know, fostering where it's good and offering improvements for where you sense its improvements. And I think that's a little bit behind why we have four-year assignment in the industry. Some companies do that because you're trying to take the best in each of these environments and apply them to where you go. But I've never found there was no such thing as a difficult transition. It's all bracing whatever differences you see and trying to optimize them for why you're there. Well, that's great. Now, COVID certainly has brought some quick transitions and it has opened our minds as how to work in dispersed in many sites. And I'm wondering how the pandemic has affected the ways the teams you are involved with are working now. Well, you know, In my career before COVID, I would never go on a video conference. You know, I just thought it was an invasion of my home office. And now I, of course, embrace the technology because it's a way to stay socially connected. But your question was focused on doing business. And again, I think there are advantages and disadvantages. A lot of individuals are craving for that personal interaction. But particularly in the health industry, we know what's important to do and not to do. No, yeah, specifically about managing it, but I, I have to say I'm, you know, now my major responsibility, you know, in pharma is with board meetings and consulting, and it, it's not really much different. You do miss the camaraderie that you get in having a dinner before a meeting and, and having lunch and coffee with individuals, but I think it's actually gone okay. In my role now as a program director and a professor, I do sense that, you know, everybody's a bit tired of it. You see last night, you know, it was just announced that the in-classes that we were looking forward to and after the holiday have been moved to make an assessment in January. And I do sense the difficulty and people are craving the interaction. So one of the ways I try to do this is have some sessions that are not just so formal, you know, not just the classroom, not just the one-on-one assessment of a student, but to have some open forums where individuals are just able to talk share some experiences and support each other 
through a difficult time. I think we have to be forthright. You know, we all say we can handle it, but it is not simple and it's more difficult for some than others. And we have to recognize that. We're surviving. It's a technology that we're using and we have no other choice. And we may be able to take some of these new technologies where we may be connecting to physicians and promoting in different channels as a positive. We may be able to do things in the future with more efficiency and some things that have had to fall by the wayside because of the change in physical distancing requirements. You know, we might not actually realize that, well, we didn't do that and we don't miss it. So I see this also as an opportunity to create some efficiencies as we break out of the COVID situation. It's Jim here. So all very interesting information for sure. What I'm picking up is themes of transition and change, but really it all comes down to adaptability. And that harkens back to what must have been a heck of a change for you. I was a lab guy that went on to carry a bag and I was able to adapt my scientific knowledge into scientific discussions with physicians. You went from being a lab guy directly into senior management. I can't fathom how difficult that must have been. Could you maybe talk a little bit more about that? Yes. And, you know, speaking of recurring things, I mean, it really comes down to fundamentals. I find one of the distinguishing features of how I was blessed with my career is going from the bench to clinical research to alliance management to general management. You know, it all comes down to fundamentals. So you're dealing in a new arena. Each of those arenas, people are motivated by different things. Different things excite them. Their end goals are sometimes different. You know, but at the end of the day, it is true. Like those of us that have our vocational commitment to developing drugs, we all want to make a difference and we're doing it from different venues. I took it all as a very exciting opportunity. How do you do it? You know, you keep an open mind, you get into a new area with respect of your colleagues and you stay passionate and professional. That's how I move from sort of discipline to discipline and able to integrate and ultimately get the opportunity for leadership positions across the value chain in pharma. I have not had a day in 30 years in pharma that I wasn't excited. You know, that's a wonderful thing that I'm able to say, and I feel very fortunate to have had wonderful colleagues and work for wonderful companies. That's a great overview, and I I appreciate that. It's a great answer with lots of candor to it. I'm hearkening back again and my learning and development side of things. Now, you mentioned that you were working in the lab doing work on asthma and COPD, and from what I understand, pollution and changing physicians' attitudes and so forth in that area. But you also did some research and work regarding cannabis and vaping, and certainly that's coming into a hot topic these days. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Really, my work in cannabis has come from the importance for those of us that have healthcare products, not to be false or misleading or to minimize risk and overstate benefits. That's an area of passion that I have. And if you see some of my work, I started looking at violation of pharmaceutical promotion and trying to look at patterns to highlight where we can do better as an industry. One of the things that struck me in doing that work is It was about the time of the Cannabis Act here across Canada. And I think we're all exposed to a lot of either people coming up to you on the street with a card or advertisements, particularly on social media. Our team has this year published a paper in JAMA 
that is showing that up to 80% of the license holders are violating the Cannabis Act in their promotion. Some of that is, you know, social media, no limitation for children, and some of it is the blatant false and leading promotion. Now, what I say is if someone consumes cannabis and it makes one of their ailments feel better, the law allows people to do that, and I bless them to consume it in any form that is helpful for any individual. What I extremely dislike is when companies are promoting cannabis for a condition without the substantial evidence for such. And, you know, if we look at the recent summaries, of course, there is substantial evidence for helping those patients with nausea and vomiting that are undergoing chemotherapy, chronic pain in adults where nothing else seems to have worked, and some forms of spasm and epilepsy. There's evidence there. And I think where there's evidence, I am pleased that, you know, there's no fear of promotion. But when other things are being touted that cannabis will help, I I think this is a real public health issue because, you know, we have to present fair balance in advertising and pharma. Here are the benefits, here are the risks. You see that on direct-to-consumer TV. No one seems to need to say that, you know, there are potential side effects also of cannabis and those don't appear in these same types of advertising. So I don't want to go too far here because I do think there are public health implications of not having, you know, straightforward, substantiated promotion. And the pharmacologist in me tells me, yes, cannabis has been along for a long time, but the cannabinoid receptors have only been discovered a few decades ago. So this is not something that we know everything about. And yes, let's avoid the false and misleading nature. And for those that want to enjoy cannabis, I'm happy that they can. Well, that's, a, that's an interesting answer because at CCPE, we've just launched a cannabis course, actually, and it's a course for the non-cannabis industry. It's a course for, for medical cannabis use for the pharma industry to understand better because the pharma industry is getting a whole lot of questions about what's going on in cannabis and they're not equipped for it. So it's very interesting that we just launched that course now. Very interesting to me because we were having a rough time pulling together the information to put something together that obviously is credible. And now that there's more and more clinical data coming out, it's certainly a lot more scientific base. And there is a lot of clinical information now that wasn't even there let's say two, three, four years ago. So it's a quick uptake on that stuff. So that's very interesting. Yeah, very much so. And just, you know, to put a plug for my team, uh, last week, we just had a paper published in the Journal of Cannabis Research that looked at all of the FDA violations for drugs and compounds that were promoted to either prevent or treat COVID-19 infection. And these were violations to the companies for saying so without substantial evidence. And the number one product in the course of those letters over the first 18 months of the pandemic was cannabinoid-related compound. By the way, there is some anecdotal evidence of anti-inflammatory effects, et cetera, but you cannot promote a prevention and treatment without the evidence. You cannot promote with some anecdotal evidence and preliminary evidence. It ultimately may prove, but we certainly don't have the evidence to say so and certainly not promoted in public. You're listening to the NPC podcast with our guest, Dr. Ted Wittick. So Ted, specifically, which skills did you personally need to develop during and after making the switch to the corner office? Must have been a few things, huh? 
Yes. I mean, one skill was to sort of take off my clinical coat. When you're responsible for the P&L, the development of a large organization, I'm big into career development and performance management. And those weren't the mainstays of developing drugs. You know, it's good for a general manager, a CEO to understand the drug development process. And because I understood it well, I had to make sure that those in the company that are responsible for that keep that responsibility. I guess the point is they were never going to pull anything over my eyes, but I let those with the expertise do that job. I had a saying across the organization anytime I was in a town hall meeting, you know, we don't sell sneakers. We're in a business that has great benefits, but also side effects. And we have to be alert to that. It is our responsibility to the public for post-marketing surveillance. For me, you know, to your question, what required you to shift? You know, I became more of a preacher of the vocational commitment we all had in the industry and to take that very serious. I am extremely proud uh, to work in an industry where we affect uh, so many lives. And, you know, I tried to give us all that sense of pride in a larger organization. So there were more elements, you know, yes, they're the finance and, and the P&L that's always you know, you don't worry about that in clinical research. You just spend your budget, you know. So those were differences for me. I had to become much more involved in many other disciplines where I was not an expert, but I did have a management style of building trust and delegating. And once you can build that trust, you have a very good team. One colleague of mine said, you were the most present manager I never saw. And I think that's part of it. When you get to trust your colleagues, you have a very efficient organization. When you don't have that trust is when you have more difficulties in various organizational behavior and management issues. So yes, you do shift your focus, but in summary, left my clinical hat off and put on the hats of more organizational management. Ed, it's Mark again. Now, on collaboration in the academic world, what do you find you learn from your students? And what do you hope to teach and inspire in them? Well, to take that backwards, I like to be able to give guidance in career development. You know, don't worry about a linear track. In fact, you can avoid it. What I try to give them is calmness because there's a lot of stress in academia these days. And I'm dealing in a program where the average experience of the cohort is 15 years. So it's a professional doctoral degree. You know, trying to give guardrails of, yes, we're going to advance ourselves academically, but life goes on. That's one of the biggest things I can give back to the students. Don't worry so much, just take it serious. In terms of what students offer me, it's just so deep. I mean, I have a cohorts that come in with angles, that come in with disciplines I never heard. I have many phone calls where I ask my students to please teach me about this. Please recommend this you know, paper you're talking about. I've had more books given to me in this past year from students that, you know, said this was enlightening for them. So it's really an exchange, but I find that as you get on in decades of experience, you know, you tend to lose sight of the new techniques, the new technologies, even new disciplines that arise, you know, machine learning, artificial intelligence. I'm learning all of this from my students because it's a discipline I did not have the chance to study, but I will end the answer by one thing. I learned in college respiratory physiology, the physics of breathing still excites me, but I can't find anybody that wants to talk about the physics of breathing today. Uh, everything is, you know, 
deep molecular genetics. But at the end of the day, pressure and flow rules how we breathe. And that's one interesting part that, you know, I've had to switch from this very basic physiology to really understand molecular and genetic influences of disease. And I find I get most of that from my students. And I have certain students that I can call and say, if you're going to explain this to a fifth grader, let's start here. And that's why I feel blessed to have such brilliant students around me. And I can give them some good old fashioned guidance and guardrails and making sure they go from A to B. That's my job now. I get more from them than I offer. Well, it's Jim here. And sounds like you're the type of professor I would have liked to have. That's for sure. As a Montrealer, I'm kind of like the loose third wheel here. And often I go off on tangents. So I'm going to do that a little bit. My sister and her husband own and operate three hockey arenas, one in Bolton, one in Simsbury, and one in Cromwell, Connecticut. My three nephews grew up in Middletown, and now they love Toronto. And in fact, one of them moved there three years ago to work in pharma. So my question is, as a Southbury, Connecticut kid, what's your opinion of Toronto? Uh, I'm in love. You know, just to let you know that you talked about Cromwell. They have a theater there that was the first time I got to see Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons in that musical theater. It's quite famous in Connecticut. But again, I try to take the best out of what's offered. You know, I grew up in New Haven County and Southbury, you know, is also in the county. It's a beautiful state, so many wonderful things. And it has something too. It has a proximity to New York City, which is really my favorite place in the world. But I don't know who said it. You know, Toronto is New York City run by the Swiss. I forgot who's responsible for that quote. But this is such a dynamic city from the social point of view. And yes, I I love restaurants. I wish they brought in better wine, but that's another story. But, you know, you have theater, you have great hospitals right up and down University Avenue, very progressive universities. Yes, you know, people are friendly. You know, uh, I've made a lot of friends in my time here. My youngest daughter, who graduated from Mac, and now she's applying to graduate school here in Toronto, you know, she said to me, Dad, I was in kindergarten in in Southbury. You know, I went my early years in Frankfurt International School. Then I went to St. Dominic's International School in Portugal. And now I'm here in Canada, and I ain't leaving. And she asked if we would become citizens together, and we did. So, yes, I am a dual citizen. But I just, you know, said to also, you know, when my time in Beringer, I just didn't want to leave and everything worked out wonderful for everybody. But I'm stuck here. And yes, I can open up my blind and still see New York, which is great. But no, I'm, I'm Canadian. That's awesome. Just awesome. So last question. And this is what we call our pontification corner, Ted. That's corner with a K. So we're going to ask you to put on your soothsayer's hat and What are you anticipating for 2022? What can our listeners expect uh, in the year ahead? Well, you know, I will see it as a year of transition. It'll be the third year of what I call the COVID decade. I think we have three areas of seriousness that we need to think about. And, you know, one is ridding ourselves of the acute emergency of the pandemic. And then we have to smartly deal There's a British report called the Pandemic Decade, which is eye-opening to me. So this will be with us for a long time. We need to stay tough through this next year. I guess the second one, which is health-related, and all of these three, you know, you can squish in a Venn diagram, is climate. I hope we continue to increase our seriousness 
about this. I will give the quick aside, Mitch, that I wrote a paper on climate change and wine, and it opened my eyes to how serious this is. And there are elements that are really changing in front of our eyes that are right there. I mean, it took wine for me to really wake up, I tell you, but that's number two. And then the third area, you know, is just the political scene, the democracy hanging by a thread in a few places. These are all areas that we need to be vigilant, patient, and steadfast to get to 2023, because I find that this will be the toughest year. You know, what's going to change? I won't predict that. I mean, I do feel that we will move to an endemic. With climate change, I do see more and more people waking up. And this is a healthcare podcast, but the government and the potential vulnerability of democracy is another point that we'll need to pay attention to and not lose sight of and don't just let things happen. We need to be involved. So I maybe didn't answer a question of what's going to happen, but I think those are the three areas that we need to pay attention to. You've been with Dr. Ted Wittick of the Dalla School of Public Health, University of Toronto. Thank you for listening. Ted, thanks for coming in today. It was my pleasure. If you have questions for Dr. Wittick or any comments for us about today's conversation, tag us on Twitter at 2021NPC. You can also send an email to health at chronicle.org. Attach a voice clip to your message and you might appear in an upcoming episode. If you like today's NPC podcast, please share it with your colleagues. Find us at Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The NPC podcast is presented in cooperation with Imprez, Canada's next-generation commercial partner. Check them out at www.imprez.com. Your announcer is Leona Void, of Chronicle Companies. The podcast producer is Popper Jeremy Visser. John Evans provided research. The musical theme is performed with precision and gusto by the NPC Podcast Orchestra, under the direction of maestro Hector Melbrook. We'll speak again next week, when our guest will be Danny Goldman of Sanofi Genzyme. Until then, stay safe.